You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the History of China. Episode 179, Traditional Family Values. Last time, we tracked Kublai Khan's dealings with his neighboring states and the varying outcomes, from the very positive, as with the case of the Korean Goryeo Kingdom, to the difficult and ongoing, as with Song China, and at last to the very negative and embarrassing, as with the UN's costly boondoggle off the coasts of Japan. Yet there remains another front that we've not yet directly addressed. One only recently, at least in our timeline, opened against the nominal Great Khan of the Mongols. It is the widening chasm between himself and his own vision of the future, and that of his extended family that will prove to be one of Kublai's most vexing challenges, and one that will, in the end, prove to be perhaps his greatest defeat. As we covered in episode 177, Brother Mine, Kublai's claim to the title of Great Khan had opened up a long-standing fissure among the various branches of the Borjigin family. From the time of Genghis Khan's carving his newly won empire into four sub-khanates for each of his four sons, the potential had always loomed large over the Mongol nation that, at some point or another, no consensus would or could be reached over who their next emperor would be. The 1260s had seen that festering boil erupt into fratricidal violence between Kublai and his youngest brother, Arik Boke. But even with Arik's surrender in 1265, Kublai had been unable to secure a firm grasp over the wider empire. Though he had successfully defended his claim to the throne, he was still viewed by many among his extended family as little more than an illegitimate usurper who had defied tradition and law to do so. This lingering hostility would prove itself to be a far more threatening challenge than even the mightiest Pacific typhoon ravaging any fleet, or the largest Song army. For while Japan and China might frustrate his will, for a time at least, neither could seriously challenge his overall supremacy. In marked contrast, the foe Kublai would face to his west could, and would, threaten his very claim to lordship over the entire empire. For he was no foreign subjugant, but another of his very blood and line, a prince of the blood, and scion of the second great Khan himself, Ogede. Moreover, whereas Japanese pirates might occasionally harass shipping lanes, neither they nor the Chinese were in any position to affect trade across the wider empire. His challenger in Central Asia, on the other hand, was positioned to, if he so chose, choke off the very lifeblood of trade that had made Mongolia and northern China one of the richest regions in the entire world. Without at least a non-hostile relation with his family member to the west, Kublai's border with the Central Asian Khanate was as indefensible and as vulnerable to hit-and-run raids as it had ever been, with the now largely infantry-based Yuan military as powerless to stop or pursue the nomadic attackers as any previous Chinese imperial army ever had been. Professor Rossaby writes, quote, after these raids, the nomads could simply flee into the vast open spaces of the Central Asian steppes or deserts to evade their pursuers. Even more threatening was the proximity of Central Asia to Mongolia, 
the traditional Mongol homeland was vulnerable to attack from Central Asia. For Kublai to abandon his native territories was unthinkable. End quote. This chief antagonist, this nemesis amongst Kublai's blood relations, this time around at least, was none other than his cousin, Kaidu, who was some 15 years Kublai's junior. The grandson of Ogede, through his fifth son, Hashin, Kaidu would, upon his father's early death, via, what else, alcoholism, become the heir apparent of the Ogedeid line of the Borjigin family. The familial relations between the Ogedeids and Kublai's own line, the Toluids, had of course been poisoned since at least 1251, and Kublai's eldest brother, Manka, acceding as great Khan following Goyuk Kayan's death. Following a failed attempt at a coup d'etat at Manka's own Karltai, the new great Khan had ruthlessly purged any and everyone associated with the rebellious faction, which included almost the totality of the Ogedeid clan. Yet Kaidu himself had been spared likely owing to the fact that he'd spent much of his early life being raised in Manka's own household and was therefore deemed trustworthy enough to not have been part of the failed coup. Thereafter, this Ogedeid prince was given his own appanage called Kayalich in modern Kazakhstan to serve as his own base of power. Physically, Kaidu was described in the annals as being a man, quote, of average height who held himself quite erectly. According to the Persian Chronicle, he had only nine scattered hairs across his face, end quote. In marked contrast, and likely as a reaction to his father and grandfather's own fatal excess of drink, Kaidu himself was a rarity among Mongol men, joining perhaps only his late great-uncle Chagatai as being a renowned teetotaler, and even refusing to imbibe the traditional Mongol Irag, the fermented and slightly alcoholic mare's milk. Nor, apparently, did he indulge in salt when he ate his food, apparently strictly keeping to the traditional Mongol dietary habit of cooking his meals in their own juices and eating it otherwise unseasoned. Apart from his noteworthy sobriety, Kaidu was otherwise as stringently traditionalist in his habits as he was in his diet. Unlike many of his kinsmen, who had often adopted the beliefs and lifestyles of those they had conquered and now ruled over, Kaidu had kept to the old ways. While the Mongols in Arabia had largely adopted Islam, those in Russia, Christianity, and those in China, Tibetan Buddhism, quote, Kaidu adhered to the native Mongol religion, rising before dawn to meditate and bowing down to the sun several times daily, end quote. Perhaps the most famous aspect of Kaidu, of the Ogedes, was his daughter and chief lieutenant both on and off the battlefield. Known by several names, Marco Polo, for instance, calls her Aizaruk, derived from the Turkish for moonlight. She is best known as Hutulun, itself stemming from the Mongolian Hotosakan, meaning all white. Born around 1260, Hutulun, as she grew into young womanhood, became renowned across the empire as much for her combat prowess as her desirability. From Weatherford, quote, charitably described as beautiful and much sought after by men, Hutulun had a large and powerful figure. She excelled in all the Mongol arts, riding horses, shooting arrows, and even wrestling. She became known as a champion wrestler whom no man could throw, end quote. Marco Polo himself wrote of her that she was, quote, very beautiful, but also so strong and brave that in all her father's realm, there was no man who could outdo her in feats of strength, end quote. So she's basically all of the fearsome combat prowess of Brienne of Tarth, combined with the social status and desirability of Sansa Stark. It was her love of wrestling, 
a favorite sport of the Mongols, but typically reserved only for the men, that led to some of the most famous tales about Princess Kutulun. Like all parents, hers wished that she be matched with and marry a suitable husband when she came of age. Yet Kutulun would not consent to just anyone. Firmly of the position that she would brook no man weaker than herself, her standing condition for any and every suitor was that he must first best her in a fair and open competition of strength and martial skill, namely wrestling. The challenge was open to any prospective man, provided that he could afford the wager's price, for he must put up as his collateral no fewer than 100 fine horses to be added to Kotalun's personal herd should he fail to best her. Time and again, strapping, confident young men would arrive at Haidu's encampment, full of swagger and bravado, asking for Kutulun's hand in marriage. And time and again, they would depart with their tail tucked between their legs, beaten and sore, and one hundred horses poorer. In time, the herds of Kaidu and Kutulun numbered in the thousands. Yet her parents grew more and more concerned. When would a man arrive that could defeat and thus betroth her? And if no man could do so, what then? By 1280, with their daughter's 20th birthday approaching, Hutlun's herd had reportedly grown to more than 10,000 horses, and she remained very much undefeated, very much single, and by all accounts perfectly happy with both conditions. Yet another challenger, a quote, handsome, self-confident, and skillful young prince, end quote, arrived at Kaidu's encampment to test his luck and skill for Hutlun's hand in marriage. The prince had brought with him not 100 horses, but instead a thousand, so confident was he that he would at last best this unbestable woman. Impressed as much by the prince's physical stature as by his own rank and status, Hutlun's parents were delighted that one such as he had at last arrived to end this worrying competition once and for all. After welcoming him to their home, they privately pulled Hutlun aside for a brief parental word. He was, quote, young and handsome, fearless and strong in every way insomuch that not a man anywhere in his father's realm could vie with him. End quote. In other words, daughter dearest, this hunk of prince is broiled horse in a skin sack level of good. He's a bow hewn from a single perfect piece of the finest you, if he catch my drift. What we're saying, dear daughter, is that you should let him win. I mean, it's not like you're going to catch a bigger fish. To this, however, Hutlun responded haughtily, that, quote, she would never let herself be vanquished if she could help it. If, indeed, he should get the better of her, then she would gladly be his wife. End quote. And then she walked off, leaving her parents powerless to stop her. As Rossaby writes, quote, Among the Chinese of that day, the young and the female were dominated by the old and the male. But Mongol noblewomen had minds of their own and did not hesitate to assert their views. End quote. Throw the match? For a man? How could she ever respect him, knowing that she hadn't given her all? And more important, how could she ever respect herself again? No, if he wanted her, no matter how wealthy or powerful this prince might be, he would have to beat her fair and square, just like all the others. The day arrived soon enough, and a large expectant crowd had gathered to see the prince face off against the princess. Apart from the main wager, a thousand horses against Kutlun's hand in marriage. Undoubtedly, no small number of side bets were placed that day as the two grapplers faced each other down. The contest began, and the two began to grapple with each other. 
For a long time, the pair found themselves evenly matched, with neither finding purchase to gain the upper hand. Quote, When both had taken post in the middle of the hall, they grappled each other by the arms and wrestled this way and that, but for a long time, neither could be the better of the other. End quote. Suddenly, with a flash of motion, Hüthlund whirled and flipped her opponent onto his back, pinning him and ending the competition. She had won yet again. Disgraced and embarrassed, like all the others, at having been bested by a mere woman, the defeated prince hastily packed up his belongings and rode off without so much as a goodbye. But he was at least sure to leave behind the thousand horses, which Hüthlund was only too happy to add to her tremendous herd. It seems that from this time on, whatever his personal feelings on the matter, Kaidu resigned himself to the fact that his daughter simply could not be forced to marry, unless and until she and she alone chose to be flipped. And until, unless, that time came, she would serve far better in a position that she truly excelled, at his side, on the field of battle, commanding and leading men to victory and glory. From Polo, quote, Not a knight in all his train played such feats of arms as she did. Sometimes she would quit her father's side and made a dash at the host of the enemy and seize some man thereout, as deftly as a hawk pounces on a bird, and carry him to her father. And she did this many a time. End quote. In time, Hütlun would receive a rare honor from her father, a gerige, or as Polo termed it, a paiza, a large stamped medallion which acted, in effect, as an official passport and signet of power and station all across the Khanate. Quote, Consisting of an engraved disc or rectangular plate worn on a chain around the neck, made of silver or gold, it stated the power of the holder, and that it was granted by the Khan under the will of the eternal blue sky. End quote. Such a signet of office was, much like wrestling, almost solely the domain of men, and indeed, Hüthun was the only woman in Mongol history ever recorded as having been issued a gerig of her own. Though, at least to some extent, Hüthun's unusual nature must have frustrated her parents and their heartfelt wish that she be married, it's indicative of their respect for her and the status of noblewomen altogether under the traditional Mongol laws that Hüthun was allowed to make her own way, so to speak, even in such an unorthodox manner, as being a female battlefield commander. Rossaby writes, quote, Hüthlun represented the virtues Kaidu found most praiseworthy. She was proud and brave, and she valued physical strength and endurance. She enjoyed the life of a warrior, not the life of a governor. Her habitat was the open spaces, not a grand palace in a populous, though splendid, capital city. She sought a mate who was proficient in combat, rather than in scholarship or in ruling. In short, she favored the pastoral, nomadic society over a sedentary, agricultural society ruled by a central government. End quote. She was everything that a traditional Mongol, man or woman, could and should be. And it wasn't only her father who saw it or felt that way. Many among the Mongols of Central Asia looked at Kaidu and Kuthlun and saw in them the purest and most noble version of themselves, the kind of people they once had been when Genghis himself had rode across the lands as the embodiment of Tangri's wrath and the punishment of God, before they had acclimated themselves to their new roles as governors and conquerors of distant peoples and places, before they had slung themselves down from their noble horseback to sit atop thrones 
and forget the life of the steppes, before they'd traded away their fur and leather deals for fine silks and gold-plated armor, and become like the farming animals they lorded over, and had become something less than they once were. To the Mongols of Central Asia, those of their kin who had left their homeland had, to put it mildly, gone soft. They'd forgotten the very aspect of themselves and their people that had won them the empire in the first place. That aspect that Kaidu and Khutlun still managed to embody. This simple, hardy nature that only a life lived amidst the herds and hills of the grasslands could produce. And that now so many of their kind had traded away for the quote-unquote finer things the settled societies had on offer. To them, no Mongol so represented this fall from grace as he who now, at least as they saw it, had gone so far as to even deny his own Mongolian heritage by claiming to be a Chinese emperor. Kublai might have laid claim to the title of Great Khan of the Mongols, but there seemed to be little Mongol left in him at all. His children spoke and dressed as the Chinese. He no longer observed the sacred tenets of the great blue sky, but dabbled into foreign cults like Buddhism and Taoism. Day by day, it had been made clear that Kublai had violated the Yasa, the letter of the law as laid out by the great Lord Genghis, as well as the Yosun, the spirit of Mongolian custom and tradition, in favor of foreign Chinese institutions and comforts. And a great Khan such as that could be no true Khan at all. Of course, that is certainly not the tale as told from the Yuan side of the brewing conflict. The Yuan Shi and other Chinese-derived records depict Kaidu not as a noble protector of traditional Mongol values against the encroachment of foreign customs and ideas, but instead as a stereotypical rebel, very much in the same vein that they speak of Arik Buk and his own doomed struggle against Kublai's ascendancy. A cruel, treacherous, duplicitous, barbarous savage interested solely in pillage, theft, and destruction, and to unmake all of the civilizational traits that had made the Mongol nation great. Close study, however, shows this depiction for the oversimplified and often outright false characterization for what it is. In spite of what the UN commentaries claim, Kaidu did not fight against Kublai for material or personal gain, nor was plunder his sole, or even frequent, objective. Quote, to him, the vital task was to preserve the nomadic society without the inroads imposed on it by Kublai. He did not intend to destroy the flourishing towns in the region or to dismantle their commercial bases. In fact, he constructed new towns and rebuilt cities that had been damaged earlier in the various states of the Mongol conquests. End quote. The cities of Andijan and Tirmid both stand as potent examples of Kaidu's process of rebuilding or constructing anew population centers previously devastated that quickly themselves grew to become thriving and vibrant centers of trade and culture along the Central Asian Silk Road, and, quote, offer sufficient proof that Kaidu did not recklessly seek to devastate the oases and towns of Central Asia, or to expand the territories available for herding at the expense of the region's traditional economy. He simply tried to restore Ogade's line, end quote. Kaidu was willing to work with and accommodate the settled peoples and societies that existed across his territories as well as acknowledging their usefulness, yet he still identified primarily with the nomadic peoples like himself. To that end, then, he believed that his cousin, Kublai, had fully capitulated to the hedonism and material pleasures of the sedentary world, 
and that was a fundamental betrayal of the shared Mongol heritage. He was therefore not to be trusted and unfit to lead the empire. The exact date of the outbreak of formal hostilities between Haidu and Kublai is murky, since it seems to have been more of a gradual deterioration of pro forma niceties and polite declinations of requests for one to visit the other over a period of several years. Both were clearly aware by the mid-1260s, however, that a conflict was unavoidable and eminent, as seen with Kublai appointing his fourth son, Nomu Khan, as the Beiping Wang, the Prince of Northern Pacification, on the 9th of July, 1266. The intent was undoubtedly even then to have the young man take command of the military affairs of northern China and defend it against his hostile second cousin Kaidu's advances, as well as his 40,000 Ogaded soldiers. Like his elder brother, the heir apparent to the throne, Prince Zhenjin, also known by the Mongolization of his name, Dingham, both meaning true gold, Nomakon was a product of Kublai and his queen and life partner, Tabi. But whereas Dunjin had been prepared and educated from an early age in the affairs of statecraft, governance, and Chinese culture and ideas, Nomakon was much more educated in a more militaristic and one might even say traditionally Mongolian skill set. By the time of his appointment as Bei Pingwang, he'd only had a Chinese tutor for some two years. Prince Nomakon, therefore, seemed to be the obvious choice of who could best deal with the threat posed by cousin Kaidu when it became clear that armed confrontation was inevitable circa 1271. Kublai would dispatch alongside his son several other princes of the blood, including several sons of the late Arik Boka, to aid and advise Nomakon in his campaign, a decision that would prove unwise to the point of disaster as the campaign ground on. From his own perspective, as the relations between Shangdu and his own mobile court continued to deteriorate across the 1260s, Kaidu turned to the others among the various Borjigin branches, who felt as he did regarding cousin Kublai and his fallen family line. Though initially at odds with one another, which I should point out was at Kublai's own bequest, Kaidu was able to eventually rally the Khan of the Chagatids, Barak, to his cause circa 1268, along with the leader of the Golden Horde of Russia the grandson of Batu Khan, Manka Timur. From Atwood and Rakib, quote, The three, Barak, Kaidu, and Manka Timur, came to an agreement, swearing an alliance at Talas in the spring of 1269, and charging Kublai with having abandoned the old Mongol Yasa, end quote. Barak Khan of the Chagatids, however, would not be long for the world, as he was only a few years later defeated and killed by the forces of the Ilkhanate of the Middle East and Persia, that would turn out to be all well and fine by Kaidu, however, since he was able to swoop in in 1271 and sweep the election for the Chagatai Khanate's next Khan, thereby usurping the line of Chagatai with that of Ogade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Unlike military campaigns among subtle societies, where two armies will often crash against each other in the usual way that we often think of it, 
The war between the Yuan and the forces under Kaidu was largely a war of position and motion rather than direct clash and conflict. Quote, the two armies hardly had a direct confrontation. Minor engagements characterized most of the actual fighting. Nomakon rarely, if ever, encountered Kaidu's forces during these battles. End quote. Prince Nomakon moved his armies westward to Al-Malik, ahead of which Kaidu retreated, leaving only a nominal force behind to harass the enemy army. Pelio puts it, quote, Kaidu's attitude was, for some years to come, more one of sullen opposition than of open rebellion. End quote. The war ground on, from Kublai's perspective at least, with frustrating inconclusiveness, like trying to hammer water flat or strike a swarm of gnats with a battle axe. Though Nomakon and his armies were able to move into the population centers and ostensibly take them from Kaidu, the opposition simply scattered to the four winds, regrouped, and continued to harass them as persistently as ever. Even so, through tireless efforts, Nomakon was able to not only establish a permanent presence in Al-Malik, but expand it to the far more fertile regions south of the Tian Shan range, and even secure a stable supply line back to Shangdu, from which his father could send generous requisitions of supplies and reinforcements. Even so, progress was frustratingly slow, and by 1275, Kublai had decided that perhaps Nomakon's efforts might be sped along by some sound advice from his cousin, the nephew of Empress Tabi, Prime Minister of the Right, Antong. Minister Antong, a capable and decorated military commander in his own right, was duly dispatched to the northwestern frontier to assist his cousin, and quickly assessed that a great portion of the Prince Nomakon's difficulties lay directly at the feet of the family members Kublai had dispatched along with him in order to assist him. In short, the Princes of the Blood had factionalized against one another, and were pulling the Prince of Northern Pacification in mutually opposing directions, with no satisfactory effect. Yet, rather than proving able to cleave through these internal divisions to get to the heart of the matter, and achieving unity among these quarreling princes, Antong made the mistake of throwing himself into the fray, antagonizing a prince of one of the Toluid cadet lines, named Tolk Timur, and thereby was dragged down into the ongoing mud pit of princely infighting himself. By late 1276, the infighting had devolved even further, erupting into a full-blown plot to betray and overthrow Prince Nomokon to Kaidu and his allies. From Rosabi, quote, The conspirators included Tolk Timur, Arik Bok's sons Yobakar and Melik Timur, and Monka's son Shirge. Each of them may have harbored feelings that he, not Kublai or his sons, had a greater claim to the Great Khanate. Tolk Timur and Shirge were apparently the principal conspirators. Rashid al-Din writes that they met secretly and said to each other, now quoting from al-Din, Let us between us seize Nomakon and Prince Antong and hand them over to the enemy. End quote. Thus resolved, they waited until the dead of night, and then snuck into Nomakon's encampment, taking their prince commander, his younger brother, Kokachu, and Prime Minister Antong captive, apparently all without bloodshed. The three were thereafter delivered up to their foes, the brothers, Nomakon and Kokachu, to Monka Timur Khan of the Golden Horde, while Antong was given to Kaidu directly. The conspirators, of course, had hoped in so doing to buy their way into Kaidu's good graces and secure a place for themselves among his court. Yet they would depart bitterly disappointed. Kaidu responded with thanks for these prisoners and their help, but equivocated about any kind of real remuneration. When asked if the conspiratorial princes would be welcomed in his court, 
Kaidu demurred. In his written reply to the traitorous prince's request, Kaidu responded, quote, We are grateful to you, and it is what we expected of you. Since there is good water and grass in that region, stay where you are. End quote. In other words, don't come here. It was an understandable position for Kaidu to take. After all, what real use could he have for people, even family members, who'd proven themselves so faithless to their own? Still, for the princes themselves, they'd already burned their bridge back to Kublai, only to have Kaidu now pull up their own drawbridge, leaving them, in effect, stranded right where they were. Left with little more than a so long and thanks for all the fish, the conspirators had little recourse but to withdraw to the most remote place that they could think of, the furthest reaches of the Mongolian steppe itself, along the upper course of the Yenisei River, where Arik Bok had himself once been forced to retreat to avoid Kublai's wrath. The three captives, Nomakan, Kokshu, and Antong, would be kept as captives in their respective camps for nearly the whole decade that followed. Kaidu would at last release Antong in 1284, and upon his return to Shangdu, he was swiftly reinstated as Prime Minister of the Right by Kublai. As for Nomakan and Kokchu, their brothers were apparently greatly assisted by one of their close cousins, a granddaughter of Tolui by the name of Kalmish Aka, who resided within the court of the Golden Horde and was very influential. Taking pity on the pair, Kelmish pulled what strings she could to ensure that the brothers were well cared for during their lengthy captivity, and ultimately proved instrumental in securing their eventual release. Rashid al-Din writes of her efforts, quote, When Nomakan was captured by his cousins and dispatched by them to Monka Timur, Kelmish Aka exerted her efforts to secure his restoration to his father with every mark of respect, end quote. Still, it wouldn't be until late March of 1284 that the brothers would once again return to their father's court, which, in the interim, it should be said, had been moved from Shangdu to Kublai's new great capital constructed atop the ruins of the former Zhongdu, which was now called Dadu, or Hanbalik, the city of the Khan. Or, once again, as Marco Polo manages to flub it, Kambulak. As with his cousin, Antong, Upon his return, Prince Nomakon was swiftly reappointed by his father to his old position, though it was now slightly renamed in honor of his exploits across Central Asia, indecisive though they might have been, and was this time entitled as the Bei Anwang, or the Prince of Northern Peace. Kublai, of course, had not been simply resting upon his laurels during the decade of his son's captivity. Much to the contrary, upon news of his nephew's treachery, the great Khan had dispatched his greatest commander, General Bayan, to hunt down and retrieve his lost sons. Bayan had proven himself an unstoppable force in crushing campaigns against the Southern Song, and so Kublai now had high hopes that he could repeat his successes in Central Asia. Alas, Bayan would find quickly that, much like Nomakan and Antong before him, his best laid plans were frustrated at every turn by Kaidu's refusal to openly engage with him. Minor skirmishes were conducted, frequently resulting in a nominal victory for Kublai's armies, but without any significant gain, either on the field itself or toward the larger war objective. Ultimately, Kublai would be forced to do what likely came hardest of all to the proud old Khan, concede that cousin Kaidu was an enemy that could not be defeated through mere force of arms. He would never publicly admit such a thing, of course. 
and nor would Kaidu ever concede that Kublai was far too powerful for him to be anything other than a thorn in the Emperor of the Great Yuan's side for the rest of his life. Officially, the two would never reconcile, and both go to their respective graves still locked in eternal conflict with the other. Kublai, in 1289, and Kaidu still conducting raids against the Great Yuan until his death in 1301. Nevertheless, in terms of practical, de facto administration, Kublai was compelled to tacitly accept that he could not compel the Chagatai Khanate nor its holdings across Central Asia to submit to his will or achieve his desired suzerainty across the region. There would never be peace, but there was a clear period of détente after the return of Kublai's son in 1284, as well as the death of the Khan of the Golden Horde that same year, resulting in the disintegration of the Chagatai-Altan alliance. Kublai would pull his own armies, and thereby effective borders, back, abandoning Nomakan's former headquarters of Al-Malik and all territories north of the Tianshan Range. Even these outlying holdings, however, across the western borders, were tenuous, costly, and insecure. Though the Great Khan had invested no small amount of material and manpower attempting to make regions like Gansu, Uyghuristan, Turkestan, and the Tarim Basin self-sufficient and able to provide for the garrisons necessary to defend them against Kaidu's periodic raids, they would never achieve the necessary critical mass of production to achieve anything approaching success. The final humiliating defeat of this endeavor to project Yuan control over the southern Xinjiang region would come in 1285 with the loss of its capital city, Beshbalich, to Kaidu's forces, along with the capture of the Yuan commander and the resettlement of large numbers of Uyghurs eastward to the much more defensible Gansu region. Rosabi writes, quote, From this time on, Kublai was compelled to abandon any plans for the domination of Central Asia. Like so many Chinese rulers from the Han period on, Kublai encountered enormous difficulties in seeking to impose his own rule over either the steppelands or the oases in the modern province of Xinjiang. The supply lines needed to maintain both the UN armies and the friendly local inhabitants were long and fragile. The constant harassment and the elusiveness of the nomads irritated and intimidated Kublai's soldiers and allies, and the self-sufficiency he craved for the oases was never realized. End quote. It wasn't all doom and gloom for Kublai against his cousins, however. There was at least one region where his efforts did prove successful, and that was the most important one of all, Mongolia itself. Following the defeat of Arikpuk, the beating heart of the empire had enjoyed more than a decade of peace and restoration from the travails and ravages of warfare. And Kublai had wasted little time, and spared no expense, in ensuring that his homeland would be better prepared to resist any future conflict. Far from allowing Mongolia to simply revert to its uncultivated and import-based state, Kublai recognized the severe strain and hardship placed on the region by his brother, and himself, during their mutual civil war, and aimed to relieve those burdens once and for all. It would not do for the holy birthplace of the Mongols to face starvation simply because it was over-reliant on imports from far-flung regions of the empire. In addition to this perhaps somewhat sentimental notion, Kublai's plans for his homeland were also buttressed by the purely pragmatic truth that a Mongolian population kept well-fed and self-sustaining would be far less likely to turn against their overlord, should another war break out. Full bellies, after all, rarely produce rebels. Chief among his objectives in Mongolia prior to the outbreak of hostilities against Kaidu then, 
was fostering significantly more agriculture across Mongolia. To that end, he sent entire caravans of farming tools, oxen for labor, seeds and saplings, and of course, knowledgeable experts from the farmlands of the south to help teach the traditionally nomadic hunters and gatherers how best to work and produce from the soil of the steppes. When natural disasters and crises occurred, as was ever the case, Kublai was sure to send generous supplies and food rations to the afflicted areas, while also encouraging the local populace to recover their own production and get back on their own feet as quickly as was prudent. He took special interest in the cultivation of the regions immediately surrounding the old Mongol capital, Karakorum. Quote, the great Khan Ogede had promoted farming in such areas adjacent to the town, and Kublai renewed the commitment to a self-sufficient Karakorum. End quote. These efforts were met with a large degree of success. Indeed, Mongolia as a whole required markedly less importation of grain from China. Even so, true self-sufficiency was never quite reached, in spite of the Great Khan's sincere efforts. In acknowledgement of that fact, Kublai ordered and supported additional agricultural zones to be stimulated across northern China, to better and more easily send in additional rations and supplies to Mongolia when the region so required, especially around Ningxia. Kublai also found success in his smaller war against the treacherous princes of the blood that had sold his sons out to Kaidu. As mentioned earlier, the ringleaders of the betrayal, Paul Kimmer and Shirigei, had taken refuge along the upper Yenisei River and used that as a headquarters to strike out against Karakorum and the Yuan dynasty's holdings at large. Their efforts, however, were stymied not only by the successes of Kublai's agricultural programs across Mongolia, facilitating better mobility and provisions for the troops that he would deploy against his foes, but also thanks to the conspirator prince's own ever-treacherous ways. Again from Rossiby, quote, the tensions and rivalries within the enemy camp certainly facilitated Kublai's attempts at pacification. Though Togtemer and Shirigi and the other leaders were, on the surface, allies, they were each ambitious and had not settled upon one ruler. Each harbored a desire to be the principal decision-maker, and these ambitions subverted the unity they needed to resist Kublai's forces. End quote. Able to capitalize on this internal disarray among his enemies, Kublai was able to overwhelm the army commanded by Tolk Temer in 1279 outside of Karakorum. Though the rebel prince was able to escape the melee, he was subsequently captured and then put to death by his own erstwhile co-conspirator and ally, Prince Shirami. Justifiably unnerved by this blatant turning of the cloak within their own ranks, and at their highest levels, the rebel alliance grew quite shaky indeed following Shirami's betrayal. Within the year, it had collapsed entirely, with the rebel princes breaking and submitting themselves either to Kublai directly or otherwise making for the other khanates of Central Asia and beyond. Prince Shirami would be among the former, perhaps hoping that his former relationship with his uncle, the great Khan, would spare him the worst of potential punishments. Kublai, however, was unmoved and refused to so much as allow the wayward prince into his presence. He went on to sentence Shirami to live out the rest of his days in exile, according to Rashid al-Din, on a, quote, island with a very unhealthy climate, end quote, where he died shortly thereafter. Though low-grade hostilities would remain between the Chagatids of Kaidu and the Yuan of Kublai, by 1279, in truth, the outcome had been determined as a stalemate, with neither side willing or much able to break it. Kublai had preserved his hegemony over the core of his empire, that is, China and Mongolia, 
but had been forced to concede that he could not effectively control the depths of Central Asia against Kaidu's depredations or his effectual governance. Both would have to live with the other for the rest of their respective lives. Kublai would therefore now turn to how best to govern this thing that was somehow was, and yet also was not, the Mongol Empire. He had conquered China, Korea, Tibet, and Mongolia beside. But now the real question remained whether he, and those who would come after him, could effectively govern such a sweeping stretch of multitudinous peoples and cultures, and how that might yet be achieved, if it could. Let's leave off today, though, by circling back around to our warrior princess, the indefatigable Kutulun. Following her victory over the cocky Mongol prince in 1280, Kutulun would find that she was the center of a veritable hurricane of rumors and gossip about her, and especially the curiously close relationship she shared with her father, Kaidu. A definitive accounting of her life is sadly not on offer. Instead, we have multiple conflicting accounts of her exploits, both alongside and apart from her father. Weatherford writes, quote, Numerous reports maintain that she considered marrying Ilkhan Kazan, one of her cousins, who ruled Persia and Mesopotamia, and that they had an exchange of correspondence and envoys. But she showed no inclination to leave the steppe and live the life of a proper Muslim lady. Because of her reluctance to marry, her detractors alleged that she had entered into an incestuous relationship with her father, and thus would take no man while he yet lived. In the wake of the salacious accusations against her and her father, she married Abtakul of the Choros clan. He was described as, quote, a lively, tall, good-looking man, and the chroniclers state clearly she chose him herself for her husband. End quote. Even this marriage, however, only increased the rumors that swirled around this singular and most intriguing Mongol princess. Whispers abounded that Abtakul had, in fact, infiltrated her father's court as an assassin. When his plan to murder Kaidu had been uncovered and foiled, and he taken captive by the Khan, the tale went. His own mother had offered her life in exchange for his as punishment. Yet, when Abtakul had refused and insisted that the punishment be meted out to him and him alone, Kaidu had come to feel deep respect for both mother and son, both willing to sacrifice themselves for the other, and thus had decided to spare them both. Instead, he took Abtakul into his own retinue as a commissioned officer. He'd thereafter been wounded in battle in the service of Kaidu, and while recovering back at camp, had met Kutulun for the first time, and they'd fallen in love, and eventually married. In spite of her marriage, Kutulun would not retire to her yurt to engage in the activities expected of a typical Mongol woman, but had continued to campaign alongside her father all the way up until his death in 1301. When Kaidu was wounded with arrow fire outside of Karakoram that January, they'd retreated as per usual. Yet his wounds had worsened and become infected, resulting in the aged Khan's death around age 71, somewhere between the Ili and Chu rivers, where he was thereafter entombed. Some of the tellings state that Kaidu, on his deathbed, had attempted to name Kutulun as the next Khan of the Chagatids. Kutulun, however, declined, stating that she preferred to remain a battlefield commander rather than administrator. And while there was likely truth in those words, it stands to reason that she knew that, regardless of Kaidu's wishes, there would be few Borjigin men who would brook a mere woman being raised to the position of Khan, regardless of her personal skills or qualities. 
The tales go that the Princess Cotalun would not abandon her father even after his death, and would spend the rest of her life guarding his burial site until her own death circa 1306 at the age of 46, perhaps in battle, or perhaps herself assassinated by actors whose benefactors and motivations have been lost to the mists of time. As Weatherford puts it, quote, These speculations only heighten the mystery of this unusual woman. Kutlun, the all-white princess, returned to the fog of history. If today only Marco Polo's account of her had survived, we might well imagine that she was merely a mythical figure, a product of traveler's tales and the fervid imagination. However, part of the story of Kutlun appears in the account of the 14th century Arab traveler Ibn Battuta. Similarly, some elements of Kutlun's life appear in a Ming Dynasty novel published in the 15th century. Yet both the European traveler and the Persian chroniclers recorded stories about her with different details, in different languages, and from different perspectives, but without contradiction. End quote. The respective deaths of Kaidu and Kutlun would mark the end, in many respects, of the wild, or traditional, Mongolian men and women, and their place on the world stage at the dawn of the 14th century. Asia would thereafter be held in the hands of the so-called civilized despots and emperors. And so next time, we'll take a closer look at the policies of the greatest of these potentates, Kublai, the emperor of Great Yuan, and how he hoped to affirm and pass his legacy on to the generations to follow. Thanks for listening. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.